true crime historian presents yesterday's news. Tales of the scandals, scoundrels, and scourges of the past told through historic newspaper accounts in the golden age of yellow journalism. Whether it's a love triangle gone awry, a botched robbery, or the deadly shenanigans of a desperate fugitive, true crime historian has got the scoop. New episodes every Thursday at www.truecrimehistorian.com or whatever podcast player you love best. Just to let all you Red Rum listeners know, we have created a Patreon starting December 1st, 2020. Every month, we'll be releasing an extra full-length episode. We'll also be doing a themed episode, where we focus on one theme of a crime, but talk about it happening in a number of different cases. In December, we're focusing on cults. So if that's your jam, don't worry, you'll get culted up. On with the show. This podcast contains adult themes and content that some listeners may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Superintendent Ian Palmer also warned the general public, quote, We believe he represents a serious threat to women who he knows or who he might come into contact with. Officers believe he has made contact with women through social networking sites, such as Facebook and dating websites. We would strongly urge anyone who has had contact with him not to maintain that contact and to report that fact to the police as quickly as possible. The investigation is revealing a crime of significant violence. Unquote. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 18. Claire Wood. Claire Wood grew up in Batley, a historic market and mill town in West Yorkshire, most known for its manufacturing of Fox's biscuits, as well as being home to the brilliant, passionate MP, Joe Cox, who was sadly murdered in June 2016 in a frenzied shooting and stabbing attack by a far-right extremist. When Claire was a teenager, her parents separated, but her mother met Michael Brown soon after, and by the time Claire was 15, she actually asked Michael to legally adopt her, and so became his daughter. She called him dad, and along with her stepsister Samantha, her brother Adam, and her mother, Sheila. The five of them spent the next ten years playing happy families. Claire was completely supported and loved throughout her teenage years and education. She lived in Batley, working in a local clothing shop until 1999. And then she married Justin Wood. Justin was everything she'd looked for in a partner, and her parents loved him like their own son. Around this time, Claire and Justin had a baby girl. Unfortunately, over the next few years, Claire struggled with mental health issues and was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which meant that she suffered from low self-esteem 
and found it difficult to socialise. Because of this, Claire was extremely close to her parents, but whenever she would visit them, she would give them the impression that everything was fine. Claire loved being at home, but she didn't want to worry her family, so tended to keep things to herself. By 2004, Claire's relationship with Justin had become too difficult to juggle alongside everything else she was going through, and even though they still cared very much for each other, the couple made the decision to end the relationship. They decided that Justin would look after their daughter during the week so that Claire could have time to focus on her mental health and Claire would have her at the weekends. In 2005, things took even more of a tragic turn when Claire's mum passed away from cancer. The devastating loss and separation pushed Claire to make some big changes in her life. She first moved to Carlisle before relocating again and this time settling just across the city of Manchester in a new flat in Blackfriars in Salford. I used to live in Blackfriars and chose it because of its flexibility. It's a beautiful hybrid of proper Salford living as well as being walkable to the bright lights of the city centre. It's the perfect place for exploring, raising a child and meeting new people. Claire could also afford a place with its own garden, which was a major positive for raising a youngster. Her semi-detached house had a bright red door and a brown picket fence. Things were perfect for her fresh start. By the time Claire had moved to Blackfriars, She was also on the correct medication for her bipolar disorder, so she was feeling much more settled and stable. It was around this time, Claire decided to start dating again. By this point, it was early 2007, and although online dating websites like Match.com had been around since 1995, they weren't really in the mainstream like they are today, with the likes of Tinder and Bumble. Claire set up a Lonely Hearts profile and wrote, quote, I am a talkative, affectionate woman who would love to hear from someone who is relatively sane in my area. I would like to meet a respectful, affectionate man, unquote. She also listed a number of her likes and dislikes and said that her biggest fear was, quote, dying painfully. Back in the early 2000s, online dating was sometimes a lonely and scary place. And even though Claire had signed up to a number of dating sites, she'd had no luck so far, and she was starting to feel down about it. Things would soon change when Claire received a Facebook friend request from a man she didn't know called George Appleton. She was a little sceptical. She'd never met him, but she was curious as to who this young, athletic, good-looking man was. George's Facebook page listed his interests as, quote, music, computers, DJing, 
films, unquote. And after he sent her a private message, Claire quickly saw how smooth and charming he could be. He listed his Facebook activities as, quote, wouldn't you like to know, unquote. During their first few conversations, Claire had in the back of her mind the fact that a number of her friends had found love in a similar fashion through random Facebook friend requests. Through the many messages that followed, George described himself as kind, caring and funny and Claire soon learnt that George lived just around the corner at Adelphi Court, also in Salford. The couple began dating and it wasn't long before they began a serious relationship. With George's charisma and good looks, Claire truly believed she had found the man of her dreams. The first few weeks and months were pure bliss, with big acts of affection and deep declarations of love and care. However, Claire began to see red flags and became concerned when George expressed his distrust in her leaving the house. She had never given him any reason not to trust her, and she trusted him completely. Even so, George wasn't happy about Claire going out and seeing her friends if he wasn't around. He also began reading her messages and checking out who her Facebook friends were. There was even an incident during an argument one evening where George became so enraged he ripped the phone off of the wall and shouted at Claire telling her that she wasn't going anywhere. Even though Claire didn't like this behaviour George had been so kind and so thoughtful when they'd first met. This controlling behaviour was new and unfamiliar to this relationship. She also knew how hard it was to find someone who seemed to genuinely care for both herself and her daughter. Claire decided she and George should go to visit Michael, Claire's adoptive father, up north. George charmed his way into Michael's home, and once Michael started sharing details of his job as a prison officer, George realised he could connect with Michael over this. George told Michael he had spent a short amount of time in prison. He assured Michael it was nothing serious, and later that evening, Claire called her dad to reassure him. She told him George's prison sentence was for a motor offence, and it wasn't serious. Michael, however, knew this was unlikely, As a prison officer himself, he knew that George wouldn't have done time for a first-time motor offence unless it was very serious. George knew that Claire's father and brother didn't take kindly to him and began to encourage her to spend time away from them. Claire began to feel isolated and cut off from the outside world of family and friends. By September of the following year, Claire had become withdrawn and down. She noticed that George was spending more and more time away from her, but didn't like her to have the same freedom and space. When she questioned him on it, he would get angry 
and his violent temper would last for days and days, and sometimes up to three or four weeks. Whilst Claire was dealing with the strain her relationship was putting on her own happiness, she was careful not to share her worries with her dad. She needed to protect herself and her family, so kept all of her concerns to herself. She knew that if she told her dad, and George found out, she would be in huge trouble. One morning in mid-October, George had stormed out of the house after an argument. A sneaking suspicion crept into Claire's mind, something she'd never thought about before. George was spending more and more time away from her. He seemed distant, and he kept starting arguments for no reason. Claire opened up her laptop, clicked the web browser, and saw George's Facebook sitting open. She clicked onto his messages and saw confirmation of her deepest fears. The man she loved, the man she cared so deeply for and trusted with all of her heart, had betrayed her in the most disrespectful way. Within the many, many messages between George and a number of different women, she realised that there were four women who seemed to have deeper, more solid relationships with him. When George arrived back later that day, Claire confronted him. After initially lying to her face, George eventually admitted to having four long-term affairs with different women. He told Claire he was sorry and that he loved her. Claire told him to leave, but he very quickly worked his way back into her life. George's manipulation and lies became more frequent. It seemed to be second nature to him. George also became violent towards Claire, and this is when things really shifted. He accused her of spying on him and betraying his trust, and that all of this was her fault. Claire felt completely and utterly trapped. George had a relationship with her daughter. He knew where she lived. He knew her friends. And he had friends who lived nearby and could keep an eye on her. Claire couldn't get away. And on top of this, George had an emotional hold over Claire. He had come into her life when she had just relocated. She had just left her husband and her mother had passed away. She was extremely vulnerable, and it quickly became apparent that George had seen this and preyed upon Claire. Despite this, Claire knew that she needed to break things off from George. She knew it was best for her and for her daughter. She also knew that she couldn't end the relationship face to face because she didn't know how George would react. So, one afternoon in October, she sat down to write a letter to George. The letter explained why she had to leave him, and that she would always care for him, but she needed to put her daughter first. Quote, Don't use this as an excuse to go off the rails. Bear in mind you were lucky enough not to go to prison again, and I did give you a chance, and I had to do this by letter, because you just won't listen to me at all. 
I have told you before how I feel, and you have chosen to ignore it, hoping it will go away. It hasn't. Each day I feel worse. I have to consider my daughter also. And after all you've done, I can't have you back. It's not fair on her, and she knows I'd never be happy with you. I want you to be well. Good luck. I really mean it. Unquote. She goes on to say that she's scared of him. She asks him to leave her alone and says that they should cut contact completely. Despite the thoughtful and honest letter, George was furious. He refused to let Claire go and told her he would change. He said that he realised how much he loved her and he would do anything not to hurt her again. Claire stuck to her word and asked George to leave her alone. But this, of course, infuriated him. He began to stalk her, following her to her daughter's school, texting her constantly and even waiting outside her house for hours on end. George's obsession spiralled and Claire eventually confided in her dad. She called him and told him everything. She said that the relationship was completely over but that George hadn't taken it well and he was beginning to harass her. Michael told Claire to leave Salford. He suggested that she drove up north and stayed with him for a little while as she'd just lost her job and didn't want to leave her daughter behind in Salford. About a week after Claire had broken up with George, he made contact with her again and started to threaten her. The loss of control actually spurred George on and he began to stalk and harass Claire every day. He began turning up at the house in the early hours of the morning, screaming that he was going to burn her house down and if she didn't let him in, the next time they were alone together, he would beat her up, smash the windows, have her stabbed and even hit her with an iron. Claire immediately went to Pendleton Police Station and reported the incidents. An officer accompanied her home, made sure the doors were lockable and left once he felt confident she was safe. The very next day, however, Claire was woken up by a violent pounding on her front door, followed by shouting, screaming and the smashing of a window. It was George. He was demanding that she let him in. By this point, Claire was genuinely scared for her life and called 999 to request help. She explained the situation and waited patiently by the door for a police officer to turn up or call back. George eventually left, but no one from the police station turned up until much later in the afternoon. The officer that arrived wasn't actually there to investigate that morning's incident, but was there to take a statement about the incident the previous day. When Claire asked where the help she'd requested had gotten to that day, the officer checked and then informed her that unfortunately, despite 26 requests for officer help, no one had been sent out at all because of, quote, insufficient police officers being available. 
The police officer took Claire's statement about the previous incident involving George and advised her to get new locks on her doors and windows, as well as giving her the details of some domestic abuse agencies. George was soon arrested on suspicion of criminal damage. Later that same day, however, he was released on bail on the condition that he didn't see or contact Claire, nor was he to go anywhere near her house. George agreed to the terms and was set free. By this point, only the initial complaint had been dealt with and Claire hadn't been asked to give a statement about the 999 call she made after that regarding the threats George had made and the threatening pounding on the door. Two days later, two police officers were finally available to take a statement from Claire regarding this 999 call. The officers made their way to her house, but when they arrived, Claire wasn't in, so the officers left her a note asking her to get in contact. At this point, George was still out on bail, under the conditions that he was not to contact or be in close distance of Claire. Unfortunately, it was around this time that George carefully crafted his way back into Claire's life. It is well known that abusive relationships are difficult to completely walk away from. Even when the partner in question has been emotionally and physically abusive, these people are usually expert manipulators and the National Domestic Violence Hotline states that on average, a woman will leave an abusive relationship seven times before she leaves for good. Leaving an abusive relationship is a difficult process and often requires the love and support of close family and friends, as well as multiple attempts before the victim is able to leave permanently. During the process of leaving George, Claire had decided not to tell any of her closest friends. She didn't want to worry them, and as time passed, George's contact was less violent and leant more towards how he used to be. He stopped pushing to see her, and for a number of days and weeks, left her alone. During this time, however, although George wasn't physically seeing Claire, he was contacting her on Facebook and by phone. He actually managed to convince Claire that because he had stopped smoking cannabis, he was much calmer and less paranoid. He also told her he had changed and he wouldn't push anything on her. He wanted to be on good terms, but the restraining order was restrictive and meant that he couldn't visit his friends who lived close to Claire because he would be breaking his bail terms. Claire agreed to this and wrote a letter to the police asking for charges against George to be dropped. Although the restraining order was initially upheld, it was amended just a number of weeks afterwards, with Claire agreeing that she believed George was no longer a threat. Claire did keep in contact with George over this period, but at a distance, until one evening in mid-January, 
George got in contact with her to ask if she wanted to come round. He just wanted to clear the air, and after all, over the last few weeks, he had really proved his change in behaviour. Claire agreed. There was perhaps still a part of her that truly believed that the abuse may subside and eventually be a distant memory. But as soon as she arrived at George's flat, Claire realised she'd made a mistake. She politely listened to what he had to say, and as soon as it was possible for her to do so, she tried to leave. George wasn't happy about this, and told her that he thought she'd come round because she wanted to get back together. He told her she needed him. He then proceeded to rape her. Claire reported the rape to the police the very next morning, whilst the following morning at 2.43am, George called the police station to ask if a complaint had been made against him. It was confirmed to him that a complaint had indeed been made. 45 minutes later, police arrived at George's home address to arrest him for the sexual assault. George denied all charges and unfortunately, by the afternoon, he was bailed out due to lack of sufficient evidence. Following the terrifying attack in her own home, the Greater Manchester Police Department reported the details of the assault to the Domestic Violence Unit, who then carried out a full risk assessment and installed a home link alarm in Claire's home. On the 20th of January, Claire was asked to come down to the police station so she could take part in a video interview to document the sexual assault. However, because of another interview overrunning, Claire was told that the interview needed to be postponed and she would have to come back in another day. Early on January the 22nd, George called Greater Manchester Police to ask if Claire had reported him for breaching his bail conditions. When asked which condition or conditions he was referring to, he told them he meant contact via computer. He was told that no complaints had been received. However, just a few hours later, Claire did call the police station to inform them George had poked her on Facebook. Poking is a bit like popping up on someone's Facebook. You can't have a conversation, but it lets the other person know that you've been on their profile. Just after midnight on the 23rd of January, police arrived at Claire's home and she told them that George had sent her, quote, three automated messages, unquote. Although George was arrested for this, he was quickly released due to the, quote, relatively minor and non-threatening nature of the bail breach, unquote. This is where the police work gets a little bit confusing. Claire was finally video interviewed about the sexual assault and she gave the officers details of all sexual relations, physical contact and phone or online contact that she'd had with George. The report was then submitted to the Crown Prosecution Service, or the CPS, whose job is to provide legal advice to the police 
during the course of criminal investigations so that they can then decide if a suspect should face criminal charges. Within that report submitted to the CPS, there was no mention of the sexual assault, which had been documented just days before. The CPS's advice was therefore perhaps somewhat inadequate. They couldn't make a thorough recommendation because they didn't have all of the information. Even so, the CPS did advise that George needed to be warned under the Harassment and Protection Act in relation to contacting and harassing Claire. George was issued with a fixed penalty notice for causing criminal damage, but was not issued with a warning under the Harassment Act. Around a week later, Claire's dad Michael became worried when he couldn't make contact with Claire. He wasn't sure what to do. He called Justin, Claire's ex-husband and the father of their child. He asked if he had heard from Claire recently, and when Justin said he hadn't, Michael began to panic. Justin said he would call in at Claire's house on his way to work. As Justin approached the house in his car, he pulled up and examined Claire's home. Nothing looked out of the ordinary. Claire's car was in the drive and the curtains were drawn. Justin knocked on the door and waited, but when there was no answer, he decided to take a look around the back. As he approached the garden, he noticed that the back door was ajar. He walked into the house and called out for Claire, but there was no answer. He slowly climbed the stairs and made his way towards the main bedroom. He turned the handle, called out for Claire, and peered inside. What he found was chilling. He noticed the smell of burnt flesh and then saw the charred remains of Claire. There was an ashtray on top of her body. The police quickly determined that Claire had been strangled to death before being set on fire in an attempt to make it seem like an accident. It was soon revealed that George had entered the house with a spare key he owned. It's thought that because he hadn't used it in the months prior, Claire thought that he had misplaced the key. George crept into the house, hid in the bathroom and lay in wait for Claire to return home. When Claire entered the bedroom, she had no idea George was waiting for her. He then attacked Claire. He raped her, then strangled her, and finally set her body on fire before fleeing the scene. It later transpired that George had gone round to his friend, Andrew's house, He stayed there for a number of hours and into the early morning. He told Andrew he was worried that he'd be sent back to prison because Claire had reported him for the attack on her. George smoked some cannabis and then, without warning, left Andrew's house, got into his red Ford Escort and sped off down the road. The police named George as their prime suspect and a nationwide manhunt was launched. They also released pictures 
along with CCTV images of him leaving his house, and told the public that he was last seen wearing tracksuit bottoms with a white stripe, white Reebok trainers, a dark jacket, and a woolly hat with brown, red, and purple stripes. They also gave the make and model of the vehicle he was last seen driving as a red Ford Escort Estate, registration N554HYG. They said he may have also been sleeping in the car. Superintendent Ian Palmer also warned the general public, quote, We believe he represents a serious threat to women who he knows or who he might come into contact with. Officers believe he has made contact with women through social networking sites, such as Facebook and dating websites. We would strongly urge anyone who has had contact with him not to maintain that contact and to report the fact to police as soon as possible. The investigation is revealing a crime of significant violence. Unquote. On the 12th of February 2009, George's car was found outside a derelict pub in Salford, just a mile away from Claire's home. Inside, officers found George's body. He had hanged himself. Claire's entire family was shocked and devastated to learn of the brutality and senselessness of the murder, and the inquest that followed was equally as painful. A major part of the inquest into Claire's death focused on the incompetencies of the Greater Manchester Police Force. George had killed Claire just 72 hours after he was released by police for the attack and attempted rape. It was well known that George had threatened to kill Claire and that he told her he would have her stabbed and would burn her house down. The police officer investigating the incident dismissed the comments as throwaway comments and that George was a quote, quiet, mild-mannered man, unquote. The report submitted to the CPS on Claire's case had been deemed as low risk, despite the multiple attacks and many charges brought against George. The Independent Police Complaints Commission, or the IPCC, found that there were, quote, systematic failures within the Greater Manchester Police Force that ultimately let Claire down. The IPCC stated that there were significant delays in getting information out to Claire and collecting statements and evidence from her. There were also some concerns over the information George had been given regarding the complaints made against him by Claire, especially given the nature of the complaints. The conclusion of the inquest was that although there were individual failures in Claire's case by individual officers, there was no specific failure that could have otherwise prevented the murder. I do, however, think that Claire not being given the support she so desperately needed by trained domestic violence experts was a huge misstep in the case 
and is something that is so often overlooked back in 2009 and still now in 2020. The decision that a police officer made in this case not to include the sexual assault details in the Crown Prosecution Service information, as well as the time it took to submit the file, shows a clear lack of understanding of domestic violence, especially as the sexual assault was an exact breach of George's bail conditions. George Appleton had a number of previous convictions, dating back to 2001, including harassment and breaching a restraining order against two separate women, as well as one count of kidnapping. Claire's dad, Michael, said that if Claire had known any of this, she never would have continued dating George. Michael couldn't understand why Claire hadn't been told about George's past in the first place. There are a number of interviews with Michael online, on YouTube and news pages. If you're able to do so, do go and have a watch. Michael is a powerhouse. He's brilliant. He's a passionate man and clearly takes no bullshit. Michael decided that change was desperately needed and he was determined to go to the highest level. Over the next few years, Michael campaigned for a change in the law. He named the proposed law, Claire's Law, and it stated that if someone has a history of domestic violence, then a new partner should be able to access this information. He couldn't see why this wasn't already in place, and he fought hard to get people talking, and began his proposition by talking to the people in charge. He was determined to change things. During one of the discussions for Claire's Law, a member of the panel brought up the issue of protection of privacy. The issue brought about questions and a number of concerns. Michael could see that there was a chance Claire's law would be stopped before it had even begun. In front of the room full of people, Michael took his shoes off, stood up and slammed them down onto the desk. He then said, quote, I challenge you to spend a day in my shoes." Unquote. It was clear to the entire panel that Michael was passionate and incredibly determined to fight for his little girl and for all of the women who may need to call on that law as a form of protection. As a result of his tireless campaigns, Claire's law was passed and the police are now able to access this information and pass it on if appropriate once they are asked. If domestic abuse services believe that there may be information that gives them cause for concern, they are also now able to disclose this information and support the person in need. In a bittersweet turn of events, Claire's Law launched nationally on International Women's Day 2014. Michael set out to give vulnerable people a fighting chance, and he succeeded. It's now up to the rest of us, and the police, to make sure that people needing this kind of information are fully engaged with, fully believed, and fully supported. The changes to the law are brilliant, 
but there are some issues with some of the complexities of domestic abuse cases, which means that the law isn't being able to be used to its full potential. The, quote, right to privacy, unquote, does mean that some applications are being unsuccessful because of a clause that allows police to decide how serious the risk is and whether or not they breach the privacy of a person in question. Unfortunately, as I spoke about earlier, the lack of thorough domestic abuse training for the police officers making those kinds of decisions is not always solid, so those decisions aren't always going to be done in the most informed way. In 2020, the Office for National Statistics published data to show that in the UK, 80 women were killed by a current or ex-partner between April 2018 and March 2019, a 27% increase from the previous year. On the 18th of July this year, Michael passed away after a short illness. His fierce campaigning will continue in memory of him through the creation of Claire's Law while Claire's legacy will continue through the implementation of that law. Before Michael passed away this year, he had described Claire as, quote, a free spirit. She never brought trouble to the door. She was a canny lass with a wicked sense of humour. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Sound design by Russ Clark with additional music by Benjamin James.